following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also. When you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Praise to God. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good, good. Well, my name is Ash. I am so glad to be back with you two weeks in a row now as Sam gets to enjoy some time with his new baby. And uh, it's good to be back, and it's, it's quite a fun, challenging experience getting to preach two sermons back-to-back, and, uh, and all through the week I kind of struggled with how, how I wanted to start this sermon off, but ultimately landed on a confession. I just wanted to confess something to you guys, and you have to promise me that what I say never leaves this room. I'm, I know it's on live stream, but Facebook, don't share it. Um, once upon a time as a young kid, I used to be a UNC Tar Heel fan. I know, it's shameful. It's a dark part of my past. I was a kid, I didn't know any better, I saw the t-shirt at Walmart, and I became a fan. That's, that's how all UNC fans are, by the way. But, we're coming up on graduation season here, and um, it got me thinking about the time in my life when I finally came to the light and I saw the error of my ways. And I want this to be of blessing and hope to you this morning that things can change for your better. I decided uh, sometime around my junior year of high school that I wanted to study meteorology and the best school in North Carolina for that was NC State. And uh, the only thing I really knew about NC State at that time was the fact that they lost to UNC every time they played, and their colors were red. Happy to say it's about 50-50 now, so we're getting there. Don't worry. Uh, I went for a tour. I decided that was the next best thing to do, and I just absolutely fell in love with the school. Just the culture, the people, everyone was so nice. Uh, Just how it was very science and technology-focused campus, and bricks. There are so many bricks on that campus. It's just made of all bricks. I think that's where they got the color red. But I really knew in that moment that it was an instant match, and that's exactly where I wanted to spend the rest of my college years. So I go home, I apply, and then one day I finally get the big envelope in the mail that lets you know that you made it. And boy, was I excited. I was pumped. I was telling everyone about it because I had seen the light. I saw the air of my ways, and now I was going to be an NC State man, and I finally had somewhere that I knew that I belonged. I, you know... I know the Bible uh, talks about how wolves are bad, but I promise that I'm one of the good ones, so go pack. Not the Green Bay pack, the wolf pack. 
But the joy that I experienced in that moment was just all surrounded by the fact that I had somewhere that I was going to belong. I had a family that I was part of, and that was going to be that way for the rest of my life. And as we wrap up the introduction to Ephesians today, Paul is reminding us of something similar, but I promise you, as great as the wolf pack is, it's far, far greater. We talk a lot about God and Jesus, but equally important in that equation is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God that now lives in every single believer, and it gives us confidence and hope to make it through life's circumstances. God adopted us through Christ's redemptive work, and that's amazing. That's what the last two weeks were about, but equally important to that is that the Holy Spirit has firmly sealed that work in us. Without that, we would have no confidence. We'd have no hope. We'd have nowhere that we belong, no one to call a family. Uh, we'd just be drifting around in the wind. But now we can have confidence and we can have hope by the power of the Spirit, which enables us to live lives knowing that we belong and we are firmly implanted and that can be rich and joyful just knowing where you stand. So I want to pray this morning and then I want to dive right in because we've got a lot to get through. God, I just thank you so much for this morning, uh, for these people, for your church, and uh, just the, the beauty of the redemptive work that you've done in Christ and the Holy Spirit that has now been poured out on all of us, God. And this morning, we just pray that that Spirit would be applied to our hearts. I pray that uh, we would sit a little straighter in our seats, that we would uh, be a little uncomfortable here as we know that the Spirit is doing the work in our hearts. And we just uh, pray that you would just speak the words through my mouth and that this would all be to your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, we are now on the last part of what I've been affectionately referring to as the theological dump truck of a poem that Paul is spewing out here in verses 3 through 14. So 3 through 6, we had Corey here two weeks ago. He preached all about how God the Father is adopting us. Last week, verses 7 through 10 was all about how the Son God the Son was redeeming us, and now this week, it's about God the Spirit sealing that work in us. Paul's intention in these last four verses of his opening poem is to assure us that we have the Spirit of God in us, and therefore embolden us to go and do the work that was set before us. Let's read verses 13 through 14 really quickly. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in, these, uh, in this, this whole book, Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was very familiar with spirituality. It was uh, the crossroads between Europe and Asia. So where modern-day Western Turkey is, that's where Ephesus was. It, very, very diverse city, lots of religions, since there was so many influences around it. They were very familiar with spirituality, and in fact, it was the epicenter of spiritual worship for Greek and Roman gods. The city was famous for its temple of Artemis, which was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple all built to worship the Roman god Artemis. They had a theater there, that was capable of seating 25,000 people. It might seem like small stuff today, but back then, that was pretty huge. 
And there are actually still ruins there in western Turkey. You can go and see it of the Library of Celsus. They had a library that held about 12,000 scrolls. So this was a very diverse, very uh, literate city. This was a very uh, spiritual city. And throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul recognizes that. So he talks about spiritual warfare. He talks about spirituality more than he does in any of his other letters because he understands the audience he's writing to. We're actually first introduced to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where Paul spends two years there discipling believers and preaching the word. And actually, if you go to Acts 19, Paul incited a riot while he was there because metalsmiths were afraid that their businesses were going to fail because of just how effective Paul's preaching was, that these idols that they were making by human hands were false. So Paul's preaching was very effective, and it was a threat to the people who were in Ephesus. So the Christians there were under great opposition, but they were seeing some amazing things done because the spirit that was living in them was greater than all of these other spirits that these people claimed to worship. And this is actually nothing new. This is the same victory, the same triumph that the Holy Spirit accomplished throughout the entire book of the Old Testament. For example, David defeating Goliath. I'm sure he was a pretty good shot, but something had to guide that stone perfectly to hit Goliath where it needed to. Elijah calling down fire on a mountain. That would stir you up a little bit. Or what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing in a blazing furnace and not being burned? These are all examples of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but in each of these cases, God was specifically sending His Spirit onto individuals and touching them because the Spirit could not go in them since they were still unclean vessels without Christ's sacrifice, but it's still doing the good work. Without Christ's sacrifice, they couldn't have the Spirit, but now, with Christ, that Spirit is applied to everybody all of the believers, and it opens up the floodgates now to a life of blessing and a life of hope. God sent his spirit so that it could be in each and every believer, and we no longer need any kind of buffer in the middle. Just think about that for a second, that the spirit of God who made the universe is living inside of you. We were made clean by Christ's sacrifice, and therefore we can now receive that gift that can embolden us to live the rest of our life. In ancient times, people would seal their belongings with some kind of symbol or family crest in order to protect it from thieves. So their cattle and anything else they owned that was valuable would have some kind of seal on it. Kind of think like uh, Toy Story when Andy writes his name on the bottom of Woody's and Buzz's shoe. He's saying, this is mine. And that seal that God had given the Israelite people was circumcision. This was a way to mark that they had been chosen by God, a people that were set apart. You see in verse 11, in him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. They were chosen, and therefore they got a mark to show it, and that was circumcision. But God didn't want to leave his mark on just one specific people group. Like we talked about last week, God had a plan to unite all things to himself. That means all people into himself and to create a huge family of believers. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that very thing. He, had, he said, you are going to have 
a huge family, and I will make a great nation out of your offspring. And these were what were called the Israelites, or the Jews. God chose the Israelites to be his ambassadors in the world. They were supposed to live under his law, under his design, and therefore they could show other people groups that this was the one true God, that this was truly the way of life of flourishing. They were specifically chosen to do that, but then Christ came into the world, and he was a game changer. In verse 12, Paul here, as you can see, he references, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. In that verse, he's talking to the Jews. We were the first to hope. We were chosen first, the Israelites. And in the very next verse, 13, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. And in that, he's now talking to the Gentiles. So what this means is that the work of the Spirit was no longer just for the Jews, but now it was for everybody, Jews and non-Jews alike, because Christ's work on the cross was sufficient for everyone, and it opened up the door for the Spirit to be poured out on all people since he had redeemed those people back to himself. And this is great news, church. What this means is that we who were previously lost and separated from Christ and strangers to the covenant of promise and without hope could now have hope and a sure place to belong within the community of God's own people. Amen. Amen. Instead of circumcision now, the mark changed. Now we have baptism, and that's for Jews and Gentiles and men and women and the floodgates literally opening up for everyone to receive the mark that God gives us. And so we get the mark, but even more profoundly, God's not just leaving it up to chance that that mark is going to stick and you're not going to be stolen, but instead, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. And that comes into every believer. So we baptized in response to God, but then God does the work of sealing his children, his believers. You know, God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that his family would be huge. And so as Paul is writing these words, these are hopeful words to the people reading them because he's reminding them that God kept his promise. The Jews were the first to get to experience it, but now the Gentiles and everybody else gets to experience the goodness of God. The Spirit was being poured out equally, and finally, like God's plan, he was uniting all things unto himself for one common purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. So the Spirit here gives us confidence and hope because God put his seal on us, and that means we are his possession, and no one steals from God. The same Spirit of God that can stop people from burning alive in a furnace and can heal the blind is the same Spirit of God that's living in you this morning, church. Our lives should overflow with joy and peace from knowing that. In all circumstances, because that same Spirit lives in us doing the good work that God has always done throughout the Bible. There's an illustration that Tim Keller uses that I'm going to borrow. Uh, you take two people, you put them in identical rooms, and you give them the exact same task to do. So let's say like bolting two pieces of metal together. So you have the same circumstances in the same setting, but you tell the guy in room A, at the end of the year, you will have made $10,000. Congratulations. And then in the guy in room B, you tell him at the end of the year, you will have made a billion dollars. 
So the guy, you know, it's the same setting and it's the same job, but is it really anymore? Because the guy in room A, he's thinking, wow, this is incredibly mundane. It's kind of boring. I mean, $10,000, is it even worth it? I think I'm probably going to quit. But the guy in room B, he's saying, I mean, no, it's not, it's not so bad. I mean, actually, this is pretty great. I'm loving this. You see, they're identical circumstances, but they're being processed in completely different ways because they have two different realities and futures that they believe in. This is the difference that the Spirit is supposed to make in our lives and why God gave it to us in the first place. The Spirit says, hey, you've got an amazing thing coming to you. This inheritance is going to be huge, and you can enjoy some of those benefits now. God gives his Spirit graciously and richly to all of his believers. But how you respond to that Spirit and what you believe about it affects your ability to rely on it in all circumstances of life. When we take our eyes off of the goodness and the riches that we have inherited, our behavior starts to act a lot more like the guy who thinks he's getting $10,000 over a billion dollars. You you don't have confidence anymore. You don't have any more hope. You're just kind of being tossed around whenever any type of life circumstance comes and hits you. You're untethered like a ship without an anchor. You can't weather any storm of life because you have nothing to tie yourself down to. C.S. Lewis, uh, actually, I want to start here with the classic sermon three points. So I'm going to give you three ways you're stiff-arming the Spirit here this morning in honor of the NFL draft. The first way here is that you're trying to earn favor. C.S. Lewis used to say that we are often guilty of chronological snobbery. We look back at the time when Paul is writing this letter and we arrogantly think that these people were more naive and more primitive than us and they didn't understand all the things that we understand today. They might not have had iPhones, but the opposite is actually true. The same mysticism and the same beliefs that were going on in practice back then are still going on today. They're just wrapped up in a different packaging. I actually saw a post this week that somebody posted a new book they got called A Modern Guide to Crystal Healing. I don't think there's anything modern about rocks. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. And that's not the only example of the same types of beliefs that were going on back then going on today. Speaking your truth. If you say what you believe and you speak the truth about your life, those things will come true. Or manifesting your own reality. So trying to manifest some sort of truth and being in your life, if you can imagine, if you can dream it, you can be it. Or work hard so you can retire early and sip margaritas on the beach for the rest of your life. Or be a good person and good things will come to you. These are the same types of beliefs and practices that were going on in Ephesus that still go on today. You're trying to work out some sort of pattern, some sort of code in your life to try and get the things that you want, whether you want riches or you want comfort or you want the praise of others. It doesn't matter what you want. You are trying to work out some sort of way of living that's going to get you to that end. And Christians, we're just as guilty of these manifestation practices but it involves trying to manipulate God. How do you view your money and resources? 
is tithing a means for you just to try and get right with God so that you can get what you want? Or what about the good things that you do? Are you doing good works out of an overflow of joy from God, or are you just doing them to try to get some brownie points? We, church, are by nature hope-based creatures. We are controlled how we live now by what we think will happen later. Our understanding of the ultimate future shapes the way that we live ultimately. If we think that some reality is possible, riches, favor from people, favor from God, it doesn't matter. We will act and respond in whatever way is necessary for us to meet those goals. It's the same now as it was 2,000 years ago. Like I said, lipstick on a pig. Thinking that if you act a certain way and then God will give you a nice house, a new Chevy, because nobody wants a Ford, and obedient children is nothing more than pride telling you that you know better than God. God doesn't give us good gifts for good behavior because he knows that if he does that, you're going to take your gaze off of the good work that he's done and instead focus on your own good work. If your hope is in a nice house, how did you feel in 2008 when the market crashed? Or how do you feel when the hot water heater goes out for the upteenth time and you've got to spend more money and more resources trying to fix it? Frustrating. Or what happens when your kids grow up and they choose a life that you may know in your heart is bad for them, but there is nothing you can do to change that? This is the reality of our lives. When we work toward earning favor and all these earthly gifts, we're just left disappointed and ruined because the foundation of our life was built around fading gifts and not the giver. God knows these things are going to hurt you in the long run because they're temporary and they can't provide the type of hope that you really need. But because he loved you, he provided a better way with his spirit. God delights in giving good gifts. I don't want to sit up here and make God seem like somebody that's just always striking down punishment. He loves to give gifts to his children because he loves his children. But the best gift that we ever got was his spirit. It was a gift that would give us confidence and hope in all circumstances, not just a gift to give us a little bit of a bump up, but one that would give us that confidence and hope no matter what we face in life. God pours out his grace in many, many ways. But the second point here, the second way you're trying to stiff arm the spirit is that you're settling for less. One of the ways that he pours out grace is through what's called common grace. So common grace is what everybody gets to enjoy, no matter if you believe in God or not. You still get to enjoy common grace. So think of stuff like the beauty of nature, the awesomeness of technology and iPhones, or the fact that every ingredient that you'd ever need to make mac and cheese was there at the beginning of the earth when God created it. Can I get an amen? Common grace, it's what fuels creativity and science and even the economy of goodwill towards each other. Nonprofits are able to exist because common grace has been poured out for everyone to enjoy, and we recognize that there's something that feels good about helping others, whether you recognize that it comes from God or not. The problem is that we become far too content with these things. 
We're happy to enjoy fast cars, expensive bourbon, and earthly romance more than we are to enjoy the Lord who is offering us endless joy and pleasure in himself. The Spirit was given to us to have a foretaste of what all of these things are going to be like in glory, enhanced beyond some momentary pleasure, but instead things that point us back to worshiping the one that gave it to us in the first place. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Now for the American translation. We are like an ignorant kid who would rather play around with naked corn cobs in a ditch because he can't fathom what building sandcastles on a beach would be like. Our being far too easily pleased with all of these earthly minor gifts keeps us from truly enjoying all the Spirit has to offer and promises us that we will be able to enjoy in Him. There is infinite joy that is promised and accessible in the Holy Spirit, but we'd rather settle for cheap thrills. And the last way here this morning that you're stiff-arming the Spirit is by focusing on prohibition over provision. See, we're not just trying to work for something, to earn something, and we're not just willfully ignorant and enjoying cheap thrills over the Lord, but we are actively choosing to focus on what we can't have over all that we've already been given. In the book of Exodus, like we heard in the call to worship this morning, God's chosen people, the Israelites, were enslaved to the Egyptians. So the Egyptians had the making pyramids and all their monuments and doing all of the nasty, dirty work that they didn't want to do. They just made the Israelites do it. But God was not happy with that, so he sent Moses to rescue his people, redeem them back to himself, and give give them the freedom to be able to worship him without chains around their ankles. They had their freedom, and like we heard in the call to worship, God did these amazing miracles to set them free, like parting the Red Sea and walking on dry land so they could get through it, and then causing the Red Sea to crash on their foes so that they couldn't chase them anymore. And God did these amazing, amazing miracles to purchase his people back. But then they get out into the wilderness, and they became hungry. And they started to complain to Moses. In chapter 16 of Exodus, they said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What they're telling Moses here is that they would have rather died as fat and happy slaves than to have lived as free people. I get being hangry. I've seen some hangry people in my life. But choosing slavery for it? The Israelites didn't believe that they had glorious riches and blessing coming from God, that they were a chosen people. They just wanted comfort in the here and now. And it's the same thing in our lives when we let our jobs, our families, our circumstances cloud us from seeing the good we already have. Think about your work, your job. You see the amount of work that other tradesmen are getting, and you just crave to have more jobs, more work, so that you don't have to worry about where your next job is coming from? 
Or what about when you look at other families and you see their children who are willingly obeying their parents? Do you long for that so that you can have some kind of assurance that your kid's going to turn out all right? In 2005, Tom Brady did an interview on 60 Minutes after he had won his third Super Bowl ring, and he was asked which of his rings was his favorite, and he said, the next one. We tell ourselves that, though. We tell ourselves, if I could just get this one thing, this one job, this one sign that my kids aren't going to be little monsters, this one more fat stack of cash, then I'll be happy then I won't need anything more. But then you get the jobs you want. And what happens? You start to get jealous of the size of other businesses and all the employees that they have and how good their logo looks. Or your kids start obeying, but now that's not enough for you anymore, and you want your kids to be smarter and better and memorize more scripture than all of the other kids. See, it doesn't matter how much work you get. It doesn't matter how good your kids are. It doesn't even matter how many Super Bowl rings you have. It is never going to be enough because the problem isn't what you don't have. It's your failing to appreciate what you already do have. Believing that this one thing is finally going to give you some kind of assurance that things in life are going to be okay. When you put your hope in those things, you don't have, instead of what you have already been given to you by God, you lose all confidence, you lose all hope that things will turn out for your good in the future because it's just sitting there in limbo. The security and solid rock of assurance that we have already been given is that we have been given everything we need in the Spirit. So you don't have to want for anything anymore. Everything you could ever possibly need was purchased for you on the cross. When Jesus died, our inheritance came when Jesus, who was holy and perfect, and all that he did died on our behalf so that we could finally receive God's spirit and be united with him. And it didn't matter what he had to go through to make that buy. He did it boldly and confidently because he understood that there was something better waiting. I'm not sure what you know about Jesus and his life. I think there's a lot of misconceptions that Jesus was just always happy and adored and appreciated everywhere he went, that he got everything that he ever wanted. But that is a lie. Jesus was lonely. He was rejected. He was misunderstood. He was tortured. And eventually, he was killed for being who he was. And in the middle of the mess of the crucifixion, do you think there was complete peace and calm? No. The disciples were confused and honestly completely shook. They had no idea what was going on, no matter how many times Jesus had already told them. And was Jesus humming a happy song as he carried his cross? No. It was bloody, and it was ugly and horribly painful. Jesus wasn't just sitting there completely cool and collected, but he still pressed forward because he knew what was to come. Just like Jesus, if you understand what's guaranteed is your ultimate good and infinite joy, you're able to live and act differently here and now. You don't expect an easy life or to get whatever you want because you know where your inheritance is. And it is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
and to steal one of Sam's line, the only way you can lose that inheritance is if Jesus was to crawl back into the tomb. Without this assurance, you're going to be tossed to and fro whenever anything in your life goes wrong. But being assured means that you can confidently learn to kiss the waves of life that toss you into the rock of salvation. Church, understand this. You belong to God, and he has sealed you with his spirit. There is no power of hell or scheme of man that could ever take that away from you. And there is definitely nothing that you yourself could ever do to lose that once it has been given to you. There's one of those old hymns that uh, gets stuck in my head a lot called Blessed Assurance. I'm sure a lot of you know it. It was written by Fanny Jane Crosby, who was actually a direct descendant of the Puritans. In her life, Fanny wrote more than 8,000 hymns in the 1800s, and she was known as the queen of gospel songwriters. She was the original queen. <laughs> you might have heard her name before, but what you might not have realized is that due to a congenital disease, she lost her sight from a very early age and spent the rest of her life blind. I want you to listen to the lyrics of Blessed Assurance. I'm not going to sing. You're welcome. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. And if you know that this hymn was written by a woman who lost her sight at the age of five, it becomes even more profound because you know that she's not talking about visions of earthly things around her. She once said, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. And when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. If all you can see around you are the things you want or the things that you think you should have, you are never going to taste the sweet waters of redemption and hope that are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit was part of God's plan from the beginning. It says it right there in verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And the purpose of the Spirit was to be a foretaste of the glory that is to come when God finally completely unites all things in heaven and on earth together. You can think of the Holy Spirit like a down payment on a house. When you put down payment on a house, you get all the joy and all the fun of having a house, even though technically it's not completely yours. It's the bank's. But you get to grow deeper and deeper into owning this house throughout your life as you make payments on it. And this is just like our sanctification in Christ where we grow deeper and deeper into looking more like Jesus throughout our life. God has given you his spirit as a down payment that one day he will come back and we will be completely and fully his. And he's not just telling you about something. He's not just saying, hey, wait for it. 
but he is bringing the future into the present and letting us taste what the future is going to be like by giving us his spirit. If you really believe that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and you have been sealed with the spirit of God, you better believe it's going to change the way you live your life. Like Fanny Jane Crosby, we can now take all these earthly ailments and just look at them as a way to focus more on God and the perfect redemption that is to come. When you interact with your coworkers, clients, and neighbors, you don't have to be jealous of all of their earthly belongings because you know the inheritance you've got coming is immeasurable. And with your family, you can now be confident that your spouse, your kids, and you are all of God's possession. So no matter where you're at relationally, no matter how screwed up you think the others are, you are secure in Christ. So as we close this morning, I want to ask this question. What would your life really look like if you firmly believe that you belong to God? What would it look like to get out of bed in the morning knowing that you have an inheritance that can't be stripped away from you? Would the people around you see some kind of difference? Probably be more joyful. People might actually enjoy being around you now. Or how would you live differently? We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. You think you'd do more of that? Open up your home and your life, even the messy stuff, to your friends and your neighbor? Go out of your way to have conversations with people that you know are hurting and people who are in need. Church, be confident. Have hope. Nothing can take away the work that Jesus has done. You are signed, sealed, and delivered into the family of God. This confidence doesn't mean that we can just slack off and live however we want, but it means we know the greatest pleasure that we have is God and us. So now we can live for his glory alone. We live life on life with this new family of God that was purchased by Christ's blood. Jew and Gentile alike, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We are all equally redeemed, equally loved, and now, as a family, we are on mission to tell everyone else about this amazing inheritance that we've received, and we rejoice with them when they receive it as well. God has adopted you, Jesus has redeemed you, and the Holy Spirit has sealed you. The beauty and majesty of that should now be spilling over into every single part of your life. This confidence and hope we have in Christ is, is reminded to us each week by the Lord's Supper. We take these elements and it reminds us that we have Jesus and that cannot be taken away from us. So come to the Lord's table here this morning with repentant hearts knowing that this is just a foretaste of the goodness that is to come. If you haven't believed in Christ yet and received his spirit, refrain from taking these elements, but instead take Christ this morning so that we can rejoice with you as you join the family that God has been creating since the beginning of time itself. Let's pray. God, we praise you for who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit, and the fact that we even have breath in our lungs and words in our mouth because your Spirit was poured out on us. And we can stand here this morning, no matter what's going on at home, no matter what is going on with our jobs, knowing that we are secure and at the end of the day, we have Christ, and we always will. Lord, we praise you for your redemption.
We praise you for your sealing, and we pray that this confidence and hope would be with us as we go out into the city and make more disciples in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.